0: Good morning, good morning. Hey, everyone. Well, my name is Bernie. I, uh, it's good to be back with you uh, as we open God's Word, uh, continuing along as we picked up our series again in Romans chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. We're going to be looking at um, verses 14 through 18 this morning. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. This is God's word. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses... on whomever he wills, and he hardened whomever he wills. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus, and we plead for the aid of your Spirit to speak to us, to teach us, Lord, overcome our pride, overcome critical spirits, and by your word, humble us this morning. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, we looked at, with, with Jairus' help, we looked at um, Romans 9, 6 through 13, in which Paul was dealing with the issue of whether or not God's word had failed. And, and specifically, it appeared as if God had been unable to keep his word because so many Jews rejected the Christ, Jesus. Um, After all, the Jews were the recipients, as Mike said two weeks ago, the recipients of the law. They were the recipients of temple worship. They were the the ones that the divine covenants were revealed to. So, if that's the case, how could so many of God's people, Israel, be rejected? Or, to put it another way, how could so many of God's people reject Jesus And so many Gentiles, the ones that were never, at least on the surface it appears, beneficiaries of all these other things, how were they brought in? It looked like God's word, at least that's what Paul's dealing with, God's word, God's purposes had just crumbled around the Old Testament. But Paul asserts, and and Jer pointed out last week, God's word did not fail, because Being a part of God's family was never just by natural descent. It was always based on election. It was always based completely and entirely on God's choice. And to demonstrate that, if you recall, he points out Abraham. Abraham's just this run-of-the-mill pagan, and God calls him. Then, from Abraham, he calls Isaac, not Ishmael. Now, the, the, the smart Jewish reader says, well, I know why God chose Isaac, because he's got Sarah for his mama, and Ishmael, he came from that terrible Hagar. Well, then Paul says, nope. Then you need to look that God chose Jacob, not Esau. And as Jer pointed out last night, Jacob and Esau, they're mates, right? They were twins in the womb, of the same mother. So it wasn't based on who, was, who their mama was. It wasn't based on a natural descent. And yet, Jacob, not Esau, was chosen. And not only could family not be a factor, neither could birth order. You see, because Esau was born first. So in, in that world, like Esau's got all the privileges, like everything's going Esau's way. But what does God do? chooses the younger Jacob and he also points out that their lives couldn't have been a factor in God choosing Jacob and not Esau verse 11 guards against us saying well maybe it was because of of what they were going to do because verse 11 tells us this look at it with me though they were not yet born God elected them, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So Paul concludes, God's word didn't fail. God's purpose didn't fail because being a part of the covenant people of God had always been based on God's choice. And nothing less. Right? I think we're all aware of situations in society as in large public gatherings where we kind of, uh, society and, and those who are in charge, sort of prepare for an overwhelming, over-the-top kind of response to certain situations. Let me explain what, what I mean by that. Uh, a now beloved tradition in college basketball and even in college football is if you are the home team and you kind of stink, like you're just smelly, and you're playing the number one team in the country, and it looks like you are about to win the game, what happens? Well, security begins to cover either the football field or the basketball court. And, and this last year or two, I've noticed a trend where uh, in a basketball game, Security will actually, the last few seconds before the game actually ends, usher the number one team, the visiting team, off the court with just the players remaining on the court for the players' safety. Because what's going to happen is going to be an overwhelming response where uh, crazed and sometimes drunken students and, and adults, uh, they will jump over the guardrails and they will jump down in the field, jump down in the court... And it will just be one chaotic mess, right? And, and what the fear is, like, somebody could get hurt in the midst of all, all that rabble. And, and so it's not uncommon for, for uh, you know, security to create a barrier for the coach and the team to get out alive, so to speak, right? And we've seen the same thing um, in, the, in recent years with, with our social and, and political protests, where there's two kind of warring parties protesting at the same time, and so well, wisdom dictates, well, you keep them on opposite sides of the streets, right? And so, uh, you know, police officials they they create these barriers. They they proactively address what they think people's response will be, right? And that's exactly what Paul's doing here in our passage today. You see, in those situations on the football uh, field, the basketball court, the, the protest, there's no need to respond to a nothing burger. It, if nothing's going to happen, why, why like, set out and do all these proactive measures if nothing's going to happen? But Paul thinks that those who are listening to him, those Jewish Christians, the Roman Christians, that they're going to have this overwhelming, over-the-top response to this idea of election that Jeremy explained so well last week. And, and what he thinks they're going to do is flood the field, flood the basketball court. Because they're going to say, that's unjust. God choosing one and not the other. God loving Jacob and hating Esau, that's unjust. And, and so Paul is, is proactively responding to what he believes Their response will be, look at verse 14 with me. He's asking the question, and then he's going to answer it. What shall we say then? Based on what I've just told you in 6 through 13, that that election isn't based on what you do or what you're going to do, your family. No, it's based on God's choice. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That is to say, based on what Paul said about about God choosing Abraham, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, apart from anything they had done or would do, Paul believes people's knee jerk reaction is going to be to assert that if that's the way God works, if he determines who's saved and who's rejected, if not all Jews are saved, that's unfair. That's not what it looks like the Old Testament has has said all along. After all, God made the covenants with Israel. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem righteous. It doesn't seem just. It just seems arbitrary. God going, yep, nope, yep, nope. It just doesn't seem fitting for God. They... Paul thinks, and we might answer, if what you're saying about how God works is true and God's purpose in election, then God is just unjust. I can't serve a God like that. And the fact that Paul is actually asking this question and answering shows that the interpretation Jeremy presented last week is true. Otherwise, why else would Paul worry about charges of God's unrighteousness, unjustness, injustice, fairness. One commentator notes, no suspicion could have been entertained concerning election if God dealt with everyone according to his merit. If it was based on on their future faith, if if election was based on their future response or future virtues, who could possibly fault God for just kind of preemptively putting the cosmic smiley face on their worksheet just ahead of time? Because after all, it's going to happen. Well, you can't charge God with injustice in that case. He's just doing it a little bit early because he knows what's going to happen. There's no injustice there. But Paul thinks people are going to have this knee jerk reaction that there is injustice on God's part. So Paul begins to handle this objection. So, is there injustice, unfairness, unrighteousness in God? Is God unfair and arbitrary? In the way that he deals with the people he has created. That's the question posed to us by Paul in verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? Look at his answer by no means. No way. Whoa. See? It's the kind of response he get. No way. Get out of town. God is not unjust in the way that he deals with people. See, I didn't deserve that. But Brother Maisie gave me mercy. Thank you. I'm fall again. Thanks. I'm not going to touch it then. <laughs> so to dissuade them of this notion of unfairness or injustice on God's part, God's dealing in election, here's what Paul's going to do he's not going to entertain philosophical notions, arguments. He's not going to entertain human speculation to kind of squash this idea of God's injustice. To to just remove any doubt that God is unjust in in choosing one and not the other, Paul is simply going to appeal to the witness of Scripture. Scripture. He's just going to appeal to the scriptures themselves. So in verse 15, what he does is he appeals to Exodus chapter 33. And what we're about to read in verse 15 is the Lord's own words about himself. In other words, this is God's self-disclosure of who he is. Right? These are the words recorded when Moses went up to Mount Sinai. Right? Remember? God gave Moses, the law. While he was giving them the law, what was happening down, back down, off the mountain? Right, The people were worshiping golden calves. They, they were engaged in this wild orgy. And, and so now, Moses asks for a revelation of who God is. And we hear it in Exodus thirty three nineteen, and Paul quotes it here in verse 15. Read it with me, verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So his exercise of mercy and compassion is as he himself chooses. This, this posture of mercy and compassion is not compelled by anything outside of himself. All are worthy of death. The people of Israel that, that were down there worshiping the calves, uh, engaging each other in sexual rebellion, they were all, every one of them, worthy of death. All are worthy of God's judgment. But hear this: Some will receive mercy. On what basis? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So to destroy this notion of injustice on God's part in choosing one and not the other, in loving Jacob and hating Esau, Paul appeals to God's self-revelation of who he is. So if we find this distasteful, we might ask, to what higher standard of justice fairness, righteousness could we possibly appeal? This is God's own self-revelation of who he is. Those of us who cringe at this notion of election might actually just be cringing at who God has revealed himself to be. Paul, Paul's own spirit breathed conclusion upon reflecting on this passage of Exodus 33 and verse 15. We find his conclusion in verse 16. It says, so then. Here's, here's what he's saying. If I, here, I've reflected on Exodus 33. This is what the Spirit's giving me. So then. It depends not on human will or exertion. But on God who has mercy. It depends. Not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So the question I want to answer just so there's no ambiguity here as we seek to understand this controversial idea is what does the it refer to in verse 16? I don't want to just pass by that. So it depends. What is the it? It depends not on the human will. It doesn't depend on human free will. It doesn't depend on exertion, on hard work, on effort. It depends on God who exercises mercy. So, uh, we need to remind ourselves, again, we're not dealing with five verses here. We're dealing with a passage that began ostensibly in, in chapter 9, verse 1. And we find the identity of this it back in verse 11. Look at it with me. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. There it is. That's the it. God's purpose of election. God's choice. So God's choice doesn't depend on human will, human free will. God's choice, God's saving some, isn't based on their desire to be saved. God's election of some isn't dependent on their effort or exertion or working or, as the text literally says, him who runs. All that accomplishes nothing. jer beautifully pointed out how Abraham and Sarah tried to take matters into their own hands and concocted this scheme to come up with the promise themselves and, hey, go be with Hagar. Accomplished nothing as far as the promise goes. What does God's choice depend on? Read verse 16 again with me. So then, it depends, not on human will, So then, it depends not on exertion. So then, it depends on God who has mercy. So here is Paul's point, and I I want you to see this. Those who question God's justice in election have apparently lost sight of his mercy in salvation should be on the screen, but I'm just going to repeat it. Those who question God's justice in election, what then? Is there injustice on God's part? If, if we're thinking that, we've lost sight of God's mercy, the priority of God's mercy and salvation. Paul says that God is in no way unjust in election because his choice is grounded in mercy. We understand the justice of God in election by his mercy in salvation. Or another way of saying it is the mercy of God rules out any injustice of God in election. So when we question God's justice in salvation, we've somehow missed the, the profound depths. We've missed the utter perversity of our own sin. We've just glossed right over that. John Stopp absolutely nails it. He says this, he says, the wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. Can can you agree with that? The wonder is is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, judgment, You believe that? Or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy. Can we agree on that? In neither case is God unjust. If If therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God. So when we begin to question God's justice in election, maybe we've tipped our cards and shown our hand a little bit to those around us. we've, we've We've tipped our hand and shown the card that said, God owes it to me. Maybe we've tipped our hand and we've shown the card that said, my sin isn't all that bad, right? We've tipped our hand and we've shown the card that said, everybody deserves a chance. Well, that shows we've misunderstood our sin. And we haven't grasped God's mercy. As a fool, as a rule, as a fool too. But as a rule, uh, I, unlike my daughter, am not a fan of Shakespeare. But there is a profound line from *The Merchant of Venice* that says this: "If justice be thy plea, if justice be thy plea, if you really want justice, if that's your plea, consider this." That in the course of justice, justice had its way if it ran through us, none of us should see salvation. You want justice? You don't get salvation. If justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. God isn't required to save any of us. He doesn't owe it to any one of us. Yet, in unthinkable, indescribable mercy, he rescues some of us. Those who question God's justice in election have lost sight of God's mercy in salvation. What then? Is there injustice on God's part in election? Paul's answer. No way. Are you kidding me? Get out of town. Paul's going to seemingly ask and answer that question again because Paul in these last two verses is going to give a second rationale. Verses 17 and 18 to support that answer. By no means. No way is God unjust. And I want us to notice again at the outset before we look at these verses. He's not appealing to philosophical arguments, human speculation. What's he going to do? He's going to go right back to the scriptures and just repeat what God has said. So verse 17, this time is a, is a quote from Exodus chapter 9. Look at it with me, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. That I might show my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Right, I think many of us, if not most of us, maybe all of us, know the Exodus story fairly well. Right, The people of Israel were in slavery under the cruel tyranny of, of Pharaoh, ruler of Egypt. And, and Israel suffered horribly in Egypt. But then, God in his mercy sent Moses to deliver his people. And God used Moses to bring plagues on the land of Egypt, on, the, uh, on Pharaoh, on the people. And the verse we've just read in verse 17 is God's word to Pharaoh just prior to the seventh plague. He's about to bring the plague of hail. Hail that is just going to wipe out. I mean, it's so devastating, it's going to end life. And just prior to that, God delivers these words to Pharaoh. And, and leading up to this verse in Exodus 9, God, through, the, through Moses, said to Pharaoh, don't think I couldn't just take you out right now and let my people go. I, I could wipe you out and my people would be free. I'm the, one that made you so, I'm the one that's made you so prominent in the world. I'm the one that has put the spotlight of history on you. So that, so that, as marvelous as people think you are, as powerful as they think you are, they may stand in awe of me when they see my complete and total power over you. He's saying to Pharaoh, you are the tool that I am using to display my glory. You're the hammer. You're just a hammer I'm using. You're nothing more than a tool that I'm using to display my power, my glory, my my awesome splendor. I'm creating you, Pharaoh. I've raised you up in this moment in history so that you can be the backdrop, the dark backdrop against which my bright glory will shine. Read it again with me. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, "For this very purpose I have raised you up." What's the purpose? This very purpose. So that I might show my power in you. Just a tool. Just a tool. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God is at work in the election of some, in the hardening of others. So that the knowledge of God's wisdom, of his power, of his beauty, of his mercy, of his judgment might be known and proclaimed. And what does Paul understand Exodus 9 to be teaching? He's quoted the verse. Now he's going to reach his spirit-inspired conclusion in verse 18. Look at it with me. So then, here's what that means. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You notice that phrase used twice there? Whomever he wills. Right? Repeated twice, it grounds God's election in nothing other than God's will. That is, God's purpose in election is based on his freedom. God's sovereignty. Some will receive mercy based on God's free choice, whomever he wills. That's what the word sovereignty means. Sometimes as as church people, we kind of toss around that word. Sovereignty means this, unrestricted power. No restrictions. Possessing unconditional ability to make, Decisions and carry out decisions. That means it can't be conditioned on what I'm going to do. It can't be conditioned on what he knows I will do. It's unconditional. Right? He has his plans to put his power and glory on display in his election. God's sovereignty and election is a megaphone to the world to announce his glory. And yes, Occasionally, just like a megaphone, it's uncomfortable to our ears. I certainly understand why this is a difficult idea to accept. It it rubs against my autonomy, it kind of rubs against your autonomy. But those who question God's justice in election have lost sight of God's sovereignty. Unrestricted power. Unconditional ability. His sovereignty in salvation. This is my concern. We're so determined to safeguard our freedom that we are so ready to strip God of His. We're so determined, my free will, that we are ready to strip God of what's rightfully His, as He's declared in His word, whomever He wills. We're so consumed by our freedom, our rights, that we inevitably fail to ever consider God's freedom. God, the creator of all beings, the freest of all beings, We attempt to truncate God's nature by our demand for something that the text has little to say about, to cling to our rights, to cling to our self-determination or our delusion of self-determination. Although we wouldn't say this, some of us stand in critical judgment on God's wisdom and freedom. You don't have that right, God that's not right based on what well not based on his self-revelation we've just heard what he's disclosed but based on our perceptions of what justice and fairness what will honor god the most but let us be clear the lord is in the heavens he does all that he pleases Second London Baptist Confession describes God's freedom in this way. It says, He has absolute sovereign rule over all creatures to act through them, for them, and upon them as He pleases. Those who question God's justice in election have lost sight of His sovereignty in salvation, His unrestricted power, His unconditional ability to make and carry out decisions. So what we've seen Paul saying this morning in answering this question about God's injustice is that those who question God's justice in election have lost sight of his mercy and his sovereignty in salvation. We've diminished his deity. We've neutered his nature. We've belittled both his mercy and his sovereignty. Okay. So what? Well, Based on this, I think some of us need to repent of attempting to fashion God in our image after our paltry notions of justice and fairness. Reasoning about God that expects God to conform to our standards and expectations, that's nothing more than an attempt to domesticate domesticate God, to create a God in our image, what we like, what we appreciate. God, his nature, his character can never be defined by our standards. He, he's not, he's not going to be dominated like some cute zoo animal. His freedom will not be cut short by our notions of what is acceptable or good. Robert Mounts writes this, he says, God's freedom to do that which is in accordance with his will does not sit well with many moderns whose philosophy of life stems from a combination of relativism and belief in personal autonomy. For the Christian, however, it is important. Can we just insert the word essential, necessary? It is important for the Christian to build one theology, one's theology not on personal perceptions of what ought to be but upon the biblical revelation of the character and purpose of God. The church and even the wider culture talks about, about human freedom, free will. This passage asserts the freedom of God, the absolute, unconditional, unrestricted freedom of God. God's freedom from our paltry notions and ideas of who he should be. God's freedom to do as he desires to glorify his name, make his power known in the world. So I think the first response this passage calls for is to repent of fashioning God in our image. Repent of idolatry. Secondly, I think this calls us all to a profound humility, knowing that nothing in salvation depends upon us. Nothing. It's been said that the only thing that you and I have contributed to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That's all. You want to know what your part is in salvation? There it is. Your sin. Why would God choose you? Why, why would God choose me? Certainly not based on our thought life, is it? Because based on that, we don't deserve salvation. Why, why would God choose you and, and, and why would God choose me? Certainly not based on the way we've treated our spouse, responded to our kids this week. That's only deserved judgment. Why would God choose you? Why would God choose me? Not based on the way I've responded to my parents' authority lately. Why would God choose you? Why would God choose me? Not based on our ability and willingness to trust the Lord in difficult and anxious circumstances. Because we haven't done it. Why would God choose you? We've done nothing to deserve it. We've brought nothing to the table. We've done nothing but deserve unending judgment. And yet, we've been given the gift of faith and united to Christ, the beloved Son. This humility should should promote, uh, uh, produce a heartfelt response of awe and appreciation. I can't believe that you would save me. What am I that you should save me? It should prompt worship. It should cause us to surrender our lives in gratefulness. Not only has punishment been been withheld, but we've been adopted as beloved children. How does that make sense? It doesn't based on anything in us. It's only because of Christ. This, this humility, the same humility should promote a, a tender understanding posture towards others, a gentleness. I'm nothing before God on my own. I've earned nothing. I can bear with others. I can bear with others. I can have compassion towards others. Those who've lost sight of God's Mercy, sovereignty, and salvation will question God's justice. But when we see His mercy and His sovereignty, we say, "Who am I, God, that You would choose me?" We respond in worship. Would you bow your heads? Pray with me. I'm going to take just a moment. And allow the Spirit of God to speak to us through Romans nine, fourteen through eighteen. Father, we come to you, we should come to you with trembling, knowing that you are God over all, sovereign. And on our own, we are poor, sinful creatures with no claim on you whatsoever. Grant us sight this morning that we may see you as you are, as you've revealed yourself to be in your word. Grant us strength to repent and turn from self-made, ill-fitting constructs into which we try to force you. Show us our sinfulness and Father this morning by your spirit only your spirit can do it grant us a deep and enduring humility before you that we may stand before you in awe of your mercy and in response joyfully and willingly surrender our lives to you blessed us immeasurably in Christ Jesus. Do that, we pray. Not because of any worthiness in us, but in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.